Well, hey, did you miss us? Matt Gurney here from The Line. Jen and I were both uh, not in our hometowns last week. We were in different cities, uh, not uh, the same city even. I was in New York. She was in Ottawa. We couldn't do a podcast or a video last week. The timing just didn't work. So we're glad to be back. It's a meaty episode this time. We had a lot to talk about, a lot to get caught up on. The Lions Experimental Podcast continues. We hope you're enjoying it. If you are, please click that little blue button below the post and become one of our uh, paying readers or paying listeners. But for now, please enjoy the latest episode of The Lions Podcast. Well, we're back, which nice to be back. We missed last week. You were in Ottawa for a conference. I was in New York. Um, I mean, I was there because I flew into New York and flew back just for the, the, the piece we ended up writing. But when I was there, I just wandered the city. Just purely as an anecdote, I'll mention this, Jen, and we'll move on. New York is over the pandemic. Um, oh, yeah. One, I keep having these weird moments throughout the pandemic of imagining if a younger version of myself got beamed out of like 2018 and then just whoop, pop like right into any random setting during the pandemic and try, had to figure out what the hell was going on. Like just like Matt from 2019 beaming on the TDC, everyone's in a mask. Like what would 2019 Matt think about that? Like, what? The one thing New York had on that like time traveler from 2019 would be confused about basically open. Everything's fully open. In fact, few masks, almost every couple of blocks on the street corner, you have a van for pop-up COVID-19 testing. And it's just something like I noticed one, like I, I stayed near Times Square and I saw a couple of them and I was like, okay, well, tourist hub, people on arriving flights. So like, that makes sense. They're everywhere. And I don't know if they're private businesses or if they're like a, a city thing, but that would just be the time travel from 2019 walking up 7th Avenue or, or 6th Avenue as on later would just be weirded out by the number of vans that say COVID-19 testing. And you'd be like, what's COVID-19? Don't you wish you could go back and be that person from 2019 again? It would be pretty incredible. I, I actually think it would be more interesting to relive early 2020. Yeah, I think actually, uh, so as you know, I'm writing a book on kind of moral panics and things like that. And the thing that really strikes me is about, about you know, these really intense periods of, of, of high polarization and, 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 and what I would call a moral panic is the degree to which people just forget about them when they're over. Oh yeah, there's memory hole for sure. Yep, they're, yeah, they're that, memory holes. Well, that was unpleasant. Zoink. Yep, yeah, that's literally what happens, and it's almost like it's it's a almost a biological level response to something that is so disruptive to the collective that the only way to move on from it is to forget it. I think probably there's a degree of. I've I've had this I've had this thought before. I I was I think I've been fairly. I mean I'm fairly emotionally even uh, even killed. It's because I have no emotions. Like my emotional mm -hmm. range. Yeah. Is from like, you're a sociopath. That's great. Yeah. I like my emotional range is from like mildly irritated to somewhat content. Like that's basically my sine wave. It's almost a line. Um. So I was pretty even killed during the pandemic. But a lot of people got weird during the pandemic, and probably not in the way they would have expected themselves to get weird. And I don't mean like you weird. No, I mean, like you, like you had some anxiety early on. I think that's a completely normal response. I don't think that's weird. Mm. I just mean like people you wouldn't expect veering either 100% into you shall comply with the dictates of the state or you shall be, uh, you are not one of the people you are not among us or yeah. going weirdo full on libertarian um yeah you know like i've been like a downtown urban progressive my whole life and 
god damn you with these mask mandates like people acted in ways that were weird and out of character and i think the more out of step with your normal self your your response was the more likely you are to memory hole it yeah i think so yeah you don't you nobody wants to remember the version of them that that emerged at their worst moment or you know yeah or maybe i i would actually just yes but i would phrase it a bit differently people found out who they were in a crisis and it wasn't who they wanted to be yeah um where i found out in a crisis i'm basically the exact same affectless non-entity i am during a crisis we actually ended up working out great it was kind of like, oh okay well here comes a pandemic or oh, okay here's a pandemic oh okay it's over like i didn't i didn't emote my way through it that much i mean i had my moments i guess but some right. people I, were I, wildly I, out of character. Yeah, I, I were. I mean, I don't think I went wildly out of character. I just think my character intensified, and and whereas the thing that I I became super conscious of was like the 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 restriction of personal freedom, and the overarching element of the state being something that I suddenly feared, was was contributed to my anxiety. And usually, like when they actually the thing that broke me during the pandemic is when they shut down the playgrounds and closed the parks. That that I don't know what what that did to me but because it was so irrational and yet at the same time it it felt like 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 my world was physically closing in on me and becoming physically claustrophobic on me that really fucked with me that messed with my brain and the only way that I coped with it was um was by uh getting doing something that Asperger's people generally do and that was getting super obsessive with my hobbies just super super obsessive with gardening super super obsessive with learning how to bake stuff learning how to you know de- decorate a cake learning how to sew like I I, I sort of delved I took my obsessive sort of anxiety ridden nature and I delved into sort of learning skills and hobbies that I thought might be useful that I'd always wanted to learn um and that sort of kept me more or less okay but that especially the first i would say like two or three months where all of a sudden it felt like the 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 physical infrastructure of the world went from being something that was open and free into something that was claustrophobic and restrictive was something that really really messed with me that's interesting see that didn't mess with me um i i've joked with my friends that i could i mean i think toronto probably locked down harder than calgary did um Mm. i've joked with my friends i could go to mars like Hey Matt, it's gonna be a nine-month trip in a tiny cabin. It's gonna be really confined and boring, and you'll have nothing to do for nine months. And I could go, okay. Like I, that's something I, I've learned myself about that. Or I could live on a submarine. Like I, I'm actually okay with that. My most bonkers moment of the pandemic was um, when uh, the Ontario government gave the police those Gestapo powers yeah. and closed the golf courses. Yeah. And it wasn't anxiety; it was rage. And. Mm. And it, I, t- I consciously turned it from hot anger into cold rage, uh, which is better fuel for our line of work, but I'm, I'm still angry. Like that's, I'm never, that changed me. And I, I, don't, I don't say this to be dramatic, but like my worldview was changed by that. Like even a year and a half into this thing, I guess it's closer to like 14 months into this thing. We would know there were no adults in control. Like yeah. there was, and the, so that's kind of like that to me was not a traumatic changing of me, but it was like a duly noted change. Well, and, and I discovered something about myself in that the way that I cope with those sorts of extreme stress kind of reactions, I have to make things. This is actually the thing that I discovered about myself. I need to make stuff. I need to help co-found the line. I need to sew. I need to bake. I need to like refinish vintage furniture. I literally need to make things. That is just, I think that that is just such an intrinsic element of my nature that that's the only way that I can channel the intensity and anxiety of my, of my being into like literally making shit. 
you're channeling energy. Like it, the, yeah. you, when you have an yeah. excess of energy, it has to go yeah. somewhere. It has um, to go somewhere. See, for me, what I would do is I would consciously zero it out. Like I would deliberately go, I'm very upset right now and I'm going to crush these emotions because you humans and your emotions this is not a good thing. So I would like, when I'm feeling torqued, I consciously zero myself out that way and get back to a, a calm headspace. But no, yeah, no, I mean, hey. Worked for I, us, didn't I, it? I like it did, and I also like the cakes you were baking. I didn't get to eat any, but I've seen. No, you them. didn't, they were, and they were they were beautiful. I got really good at roses, but you know, I, I hit the point where I was like hit diminishing returns on the on the cake stuff because, like, you know, you can become a master cake decorator, but how many fucking cakes does an average person need to make? I mean, I just I kind of got bored with that one, and I I shifted over into hobby and sewing, and sewing's great because you can always sew other things. There's you always, always sew else. more stuff. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. This is all interesting, but let's Total move on to sidebar. the actual dispatch. So, yeah, okay. One thing just to mention off the top, I'm not going to re-talk uh, about it a lot, but so I did fly to New York and back last week. I wrote the report about my experience at Pearson uh, and LaGuardia. Uh, we did get one note in at the line. I think in general, the piece was very well received. It was widely shared. Um, one of our readers took exception to it, took quite strong exception to it. Uh, she had recently been through Pearson and had kind of the one of the terrible experiences that we've been hearing about. And she felt that my piece was unfair uh, to people who'd been through that experience. I don't agree with her, but I understand her frustration. Like I was very clear in the piece. I saw what I saw. I'm going to tell you what I saw, but I don't deny that other things have happened. But anyway, she was kind enough actually to, to sit down with me on the phone for about 20 minutes. We talked. Uh, she also sent me her travel documents, so I was able to confirm, uh, verify um, what, her, her travel dates and all that stuff, and she told me her experience. So we're going to include in uh, the dispatch this week uh, a, kind of a counterpoint, I guess, just someone else who landed at Pearson just a few weeks ago recently and had had the opposite kind of uh, experience yeah, and I, I think I mean, that's interesting I, and fair it, it's interesting and totally fair but also I think the critique is unfair like we we didn't send you to New York to confirm a pre-existing narrative we sent you to New York to figure out okay what was your experience and just write about your experience I think there's a weird thing that people almost expect us to write to confirm their experiences in a weird way and like that's not how this works it's not how it's supposed to work um, we're not, you know, you writing about your experience wasn't intended to invalidate anyone else's terrible or excellent experience. That wasn't the purpose of the exercise. Well, I mean, tell me this is not a lament of the media, uh, the journalists in, in early 21st century. Yeah. Everything we write is either confirming someone's narrative, in which case we're honest, hardworking yeah. journalists doing God's work. Or it invalidates someone's narrative in which we're a hack, we're, we're bought and paid for, we're yellow, yeah. we're yellow tabloid trash. And it, the answer is we're both. Or neither. At the same time? Or yeah. neither? Yeah. It's, no, we, we live in an era where there, there are some people out there, God bless them, who will look at reporting and go, this is valuable. Thanks. Yeah. They're, they're, a, they're outnumbered. They're outnumbered yeah. by the people who will either be going, Aha! And Gurney's experience 100% confirms my pre-existing view. Or this is not what I experienced and not what I believe. So Gurney is therefore, therefore lying. Gurney's lying. Yeah. Well, that's that's the era we live in. So let's talk about um, what I think is going to be the primary um, example of the dispatch. And I, I, I love this you, idea, by the way. I love I, this idea. I had to walk you through it uh, off record at first, and I want the, uh, the listeners and the viewers to know I can't reveal everything that I just told Jen. So Jen yeah. knows stuff that I can't reveal, but I had, 
an epiphany no not an epiphany kind of like a spidey tingle like spidey sense mm -hmm. and now these are instincts and they're wrong i i don't have a i don't bat a thousand on these things but i had this weird sense earlier this week that i don't know when the next federal election is going to be but that the liberals are going to lose and specifically that when they do lose we will look back to the last week maybe 10 days as the beginning of the end and i'm going to explain why i thought that in a few minutes but let me tell you something that happened and this is where the listeners will have to forgive me i, I have to be vague here i got in touch with a friend of mine who is a conservative uh, a, a partisan conservative party of canada official um but i i trust him because he he's he's not a fire breathing partisan like he works for a party but he's not a, he's not brain rotted partisanship mm -hmm. and i said is this the week the liberals lost and he said back to me and this is a few days ago he said to me i don't know yet he goes i know why you're asking me that but i don't know that and then a couple of days later he came back to me and said yeah i think it is and what we mean by that jen um and what i meant by that the liberals had a weird 10 days and none of it was catastrophic none of it was terrible they had Marco Mendocino having uh, a, a lot of criticism, some of it from me and us at the line, but not just us. The Globe was in on it. The Post is in on it. The CBC is writing about it. Mendocino had a bad week. He's being attacked for being dishonest on gun control and the Emergencies Act. Melanie Jolie, which our, our dispatch will, will discuss uh, in particular, had a bad week, too. There was that official from her office who went to the party at the Russian embassy. She denies any knowledge. She throws a staffer under the bus. The next thing you know, she's admitting, okay, my office knew. And then emails are getting leaked showing, yes, they were told. So the staffers in her office are publicly, like off the record, but they're publicly pushing back. Krista mm -hmm. Freeland uh, kind of did a twofer this week. Um, she went to... Uh, the House to talk about uh, the Emergencies Act was just widely panned for evasive, unhelpful answers. Then at a, a luncheon in Toronto, I think just yesterday, she gave, a, no, sorry, Thursday, she gave a talk about inflation. And it was, it was nothing. There was a complete nothing burger. All it was yeah. was a reannouncement of a bunch of existing initiatives. And there's a few other things I can't get into uh, that, that are off the record, but a few other indicators coming out. Look, three years is a long time. God only knows what's going to happen between now and then. Justin Trudeau is at this point. I don't put bets on what's going to happen in the next yeah. two weeks. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I also think Trudeau is consistently underestimated, and he doesn't want to lose to Pierre Polyev, and he might stick around. And he's a better campaigner than to this date. Conservatives have lost to this guy three times, and they still underestimate him. Trudeau is mm -hmm. better at politics than they give give him credit for. Mm -hmm. But something about this week had the feeling to me of this is this is the, the tipping, tipping point. point. Yeah, yeah. And it's or it's like this is not the end, but this is the point that years from now we'll look back to and we'll be like, remember that weird 10 day period. Now, there is one of one of my conservative friends. Uh, I was I, I was talking with her about this Well, she pushed back and she said, no, no, no. She said, you're overreacting. This is summer silly season. Everybody's fried. Everybody needs to go home. We got to get all the MPs back in their uh, constituencies. They got to they got to see their families, hug, hug their spouses, sleep in a bit, and hit the barbecue circuit. We'll come back in September and things will be fine. Maybe, like maybe that's what the last ten days have been. It's an exhausted government operating at high stress levels for two years now. Maybe they really do just need a summer break. It just didn't 
feel that way to me and i can't prove it and maybe three years from now i'll be proven wrong well but it had the feeling of a government that this that this is when they hit the point of no return even if they need two or three years to get there you know i actually think that there's this pairs well with a kind of an instinct that i've been having again this is just an instinct and that is this is going to be the last good summer you know like all of all of the indicators are, are coming up bad red you know inflation interest rate hikes imminent recession stock market volatility, um, uh, potential famine, drag, drag out war, um, all of the indicators just macroeconomically and you like on the big, big picture are coming up. Beep, 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 beep. Like everything's going to shit. End of the end of the golden era is now imminent now in process. And I think that, you know, people are going to have a good summer. They're going to be like, fuck it. My credit card is overmaxed. Who gives a shit? Let's just have one good last good summer. Let's go on vacation. Let's, you know, and you, you know, take a much needed break. And then they're going to come back in September and a quarter of the world is going to be hungry. You and know, their credit card debt is now going to be unsustainable because of the interest rate, 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 rate hikes. And all of a sudden, people are going to have to start to come to terms with the fact that the middle class lives they have, in fact, they don't have anymore. And everything's going to get real heading into Christmas, like really bad, real heading into christmas well and let I me think tell people... you one reason that is absolutely true so this is an ontario story and i i'm quoting from memory i can go find the link after so mm -hmm. jen i want to stress to you and the listeners here don't take this totally verbatim but i was running errands earlier and i was listening to local news radio in my car and i heard this headline there's been like the cost of the price of natural gas is about to go up in ontario like 23 mm percent -hmm. now it goes up on july 1st who cares Right, because how much yep. natural gas are you burning in the summer? Okay, you're probably running your clothes dryer, uh, mm -hmm. your water heater, and your uh, your oven. That first October or November night when you decide, I don't want to wake up in a cold house, so we're putting on the furnace overnight, still hot during the day. In, in Toronto, we have those long extended summers, but it gets cold at night. There's probably going to be another price increase between now and then anyway. Yep. So you could be looking at by this winter paying 50% more on your heating every winter on top of the fact that you're probably already watching your costs on everything have gone up. So I track, I'm a freelancer, right? So I break all my spending down into 20 or 30 categories because some expenses are purely personal, some are purely business and some are a blend. My cell phone, is that personal or business? Both. So I have to track the cost of all this stuff. My household expenses have gone up about, I think I told you this already, they're up about 700 bucks over the last few months. And this isn't any one item going up. Yeah, it's this everything. is 30 items going up, 10, 15, 20 bucks. Yeah. So, so, so pair all of that is coming together. So, I mean, I, I went back and for some reason I'm rereading The Big Short, which is a fantastic book about how the 2008 financial collapse happened. All the subprime like, stuff, yeah. And, I, yeah. and I felt very compelled to go back to that. And there's a couple of interesting lessons from all that. Firstly, of course, we learned no lessons and we made no serious reforms. And probably the Wall Street is doing exactly the same fucking thing all over again. So like, we're just as vulnerable as we were back in you know 2006. Remember what I Almost said to you a few minutes ago about how the Ford thing is when I realized there were no adults? Yeah, there are no adults yeah. in the room. And there's there still, no and, there's, and, and by the way, no adults were put into the room after 2008 either. Yep. So, you know, we just continued on. Um, and then, and I think, again, to some extent, I think 2008 was memory hold. Again, it was memory hold. Um, the other thing that, 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 that the lesson to go back from 2008 when rereading the big short is that people massively underestimate the probability of dramatic change. Oh yeah. No, of course. Normal. And like, 
go 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 back and there's a really great episode or series called um what was it uh something who's coming to dinner it's 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 a it's this episode put out by the bbc where essentially they do um they they take a middle-class family they put them in like a victorian sort of london household and they say look this is what your life would have been like in um uh 1961 and then the next day is 1962 and the next day is 1963 and the next day is 1964 and 1965 so it's like it's a 10-day epi- uh, episode and each episode is an, a break, broken down into an hour-long thing so you see what like this is what the average family ate in in 1962 this is what they were wearing this is what they're what they would have done in the day and so it's actually a really fascinating show it's great but they went back for their second season and they re- redid the 1910s so 1910 to sort of 1919 and like 1913, you know, this family has a servant and is going out on their new bicycles and they're having picnics in the park with fried chicken and 1914, which of course beginning of world war one, yeah, older brother has been conscripted and he's been blown up in France. And not only that, but their lifestyle, even if they, you're, you're, you know, you hadn't personally lost anybody, the lifestyle that from 1914 to 1918 or 1919, just like, collapsed they went from having plenty of food being perfectly wealthy to all of a sudden they were trying to figure out how to make ends meet with um hay boxes so that they were essentially heating up a type of crock pot style um thing stew in on the oven and then they were putting it in hay boxes and then it would cook over the course of the day then that would allow them to have um a hot meal that they didn't, they use very little gas in order to produce. And they were create really, they were eating some kind of weird cardboardy fish cakes in order to get some protein into them. And like the, 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 this went from a lifestyle that would be enviable to you and I today to a lifestyle that was absolute shite in the course of 18 months. And I think that that is a lesson that we have failed to learn. And that is your things can dramatically change for the worst. Your lifestyle can collapse like that like that and that i think is really what a lot of people in this country are headed for now i don't think people in this country are going to starve because we're still pretty rich but i think a lot of people in slightly less rich countries are going to starve and i think that we don't have the capacity that we did three years ago to deal with what's coming so you know i i think things are going to get real dark Cutting, um, um, cutting the Canadian standard of living 30% does not produce famine. It produces no. resentment and poverty. Yeah, that's right. Um, like you're not going to starve to death, but you might be living on pasta and macaroni and cheese. Like that's, you know, I think my husband has said it this way is that a lot of people, especially people in our age, on our age bracket are not prepared for the fact that we are heading into probably the worst two years of our lives. We thought the last two years were bad. Oh, no. So this is just going to be bad in a different way. It's funny you say mac and cheese and pasta, and I'm sure in the other room my son went, mm, mm, that sounds great. great. Yeah, that sounds um, great. I want to live on mac and cheese and pasta. But like it, so like like that's that I would I would add to your your thesis, although it doesn't necessarily maybe this is beyond a blurb for dispatch blurb, but you know, not only are we in silly season or not only are they going to have a nice barbecue time, this is going to be their nice last summer. They're going to come back all nice and rested in September, and shit is going to hit the fan. Like I don't see any. Like I, I realize I have a, I, I, you know, not all my predictions have been hundred percent. Nobody's predictions are, but I don't see any way out of September being a good mm-hmm. month. I, like, I just don't see from where I'm standing right now. I don't see how things get better in the immediate term. There's, there's one data point that, uh, yeah. I mean, okay. First of all, let me uh, devil's advocate counterpoint you here for a sure. minute. Go for that. One thing the last two years have shown us is that our systems overall are more resilient than we thought. Things bent. In some ways, in they, some ways, yes. In in general, I would say overall, things bent. They didn't work well. They got weird. But 
society functioned through the society function and like and the grocery stores still had food and like the the schools pivoted to lousy online but there is one example that i think actually does speak to your point so canada uh obviously it depends on provincial jurisdiction even local cities sometimes Mm -hmm. we avoided like a northern italy health health system collapse meltdown uh throughout the pandemic the meltdowns now and that, like we just something... put it off yeah and it's going to be no... it's not going to be sudden sharp and dramatic it's going to be slow subtle and prolonged and i was there are uh... no free lunches man there i was interviewing no solutions there are only trade-offs i was interviewing uh for my radio show this week a doctor at a gta area hospital and i just said to him just ballpark it for me and we're talking he says we don't have a lot of covid illness right now what we have is a sick population, like people who have deferred their healthcare for two years. Some of them are COVID coming in, some of them not. He goes, we're dealing with maybe double our patient volume with 70% of our pre-pandemic staff. And pre-pandemic staffing, particularly in Ontario, was notoriously insufficient. Mm -hmm. And right now we're at what we expect to be a low seasonal ebb for COVID because it's warm weather and there seems to be a strong seasonal component to this. Ontario five months from now when we're in flu season and probably another COVID resurgence season when doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, everybody are quitting, we're we're taking early retirement or out themselves on stress leave or out on illness leave. So what, what I find interesting is how we write a lot about state capacity here at the line of write about institutional issues. No one's talking about this you touched on this early in the pandemic. One of the pieces you wrote for us, there was never a call for like a mass mobilization mm-hmm. that like, you know, basically how quickly could Ontario take 20,000 people and convert them into nurses? And how many nurses who are currently nurses could we take and upscale to, I, I don't know the terminology here, but whatever, like the next level up of nursing is. If we wanted to expand the number of nurses in we this We could have done that over the course of two two years. Probably. We didn't we even didn't. think about it. We didn't even think about it. No. Um, so think, talk about the 1914, right? Or even 1939. I got I got the military records of my grandfather, my grandfather's father. Yeah. How many months did it take to t- turn ordinary farm boys into soldiers? A million of them. We put my them. Great grandfather was turned into a soldier in a, uh, for the army in the First World War in a matter of months. My uh, grandfather was. Uh, a wireless air gunner in the Royal Canadian Air Force in the Second World War, and that was a lot more training. So it took about a year. Well, and they also trained nurses. Yeah. They took a lot of volunteer women and turned them into nurses. So, you know. But we're not even talking about it. Like our solution is maybe we can lure in more people with immigration. Sure. Let's lure in the nurses of the world and then show them the $1.8 million condo they're going to have to buy if they want to live within 30 miles of the hospital they're working at. Great idea, guys. So anyway, we're, we're full of good cheer. Um, good cheer. Excellent. And also you can hear some good cheer coming from downstairs now, can't you? Uh-oh. Somebody's nap Uh-oh. Time. Yes. Want, you want to pause that for a minute and go yeah, deal with Yeah, let's pause and I'm going right, to deal we'll with that. All right. Okay, bye. Okay, we're back. Child emergency 
largely uh, handled. Um, You know, you're just going to have to accept that there might be some screaming children in this podcast. It's just what it is. Mine are older than yours, but it's not like I don't remember. Um, So, Um, so uh, look, I I mean, there's a couple little blurbs that I was, I was looking at right. I think that that's like, look, the, 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 the beginning of the death spiral of the liberals is a good thing to write. Although, you know, reports of their death spiral have been uh, exaggerated in the past. Because I think, um, yeah, because people underestimate Trudeau. He's very good at this. Yeah, he's very good at this. You want to um, do Last Good Summer as a column, though? That's not a blur. Yeah, that... no, I, I think it is. I think it's a column. This is our Last okay. Good Summer. Uh, I think that that's, that's a very dire, you know, enjoy your summer because you know, things are going to get crappy. Um, see if I can find that natural gas thing and I'll send that to you. Totally. Uh, so the other two things that were kind of on my list for blurb is that one, the uh, governor general has been uh, taking a lot of heat for a trip to the Middle East. I believe that the in-flight catering costs cost something like $93,000. I think I think National Defense said it was $80,000. Yeah. Oh, $80,000. Yeah. Okay, something like that. And people are predictably outraged. I mean, this this these sorts of um, uh, travel scandals always kind of drive me nuts because Canadians are so parochial about stuff like this. Like, look, if you want to make an argument that our governor general shouldn't be traveling to the Middle East with an entourage, that's a legitimate argument. Like, what 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 is the value of having our, our GG in the Middle East? I, I think... maybe she marginal maybe maybe she's doing that job so that someone more important doesn't have to but like really what what is the value in that to the canadian taxpayer i think that's a legitimate argument but if you are going to sign off on her travel rightly or wrongly you have to accept the travel is expensive you know i think if she's traveling with an entourage of 29 people you know that adds up you know it's it's, it's airport fees it's disposal fees it's 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 the food itself it's getting it like it's not cheap to do this stuff it just isn't so uh i i I think nickel and diming people on things like in-flight catering is kind of silly although i understand why people get outraged by it because they're like well i can't afford to go you know eat lobster on a plane why and it's like literally the governor general because you're not the governor general but but like literally also you know that, that that cost probably paid for some like crappy you know cheese and cracker cold camembert so to speak chili, um yeah. you know Senator cheese and chili cracker cheese. And, yeah yeah and and a glass of wine like like the stuff is that amount of money just doesn't go that far when you're when you have large staffs doing private planes and all the all the rest so and like security expenses is the same thing i hate it when people lose their minds over security expenses it's like you know you you got to give people security that's just what it is. And this is the cost of doing business. It's just what, it's just the cost of doing business. But I, I'm okay with like trashing the idea that why was she doing a, an entourage to the Middle East? That makes no sense. What, what, what is our governor general doing in that role? Um, but, you know, I really wish that we would stop nickel and diming these people on silly travel expenses. That's just, that's just silly. Well, here, let, um, me, oh, let me tell you, I pulled up the, the numbers here. So it was just over $80,000 that covered the meals uh, for 46 people. That is the entourage 46 people. plus flight crew and Gigi's security detail. Uh, let's see. Uh, Who's that per person? Well, that's... That's actually an interesting question. So let me do that because it was also an eight-day trip. So let's round it off. Over an eight-day. So it winds up being seventeen, uh, $1,700 bucks, per, person, uh, per person over eight days. Over eight days. So that's $200 a day. $200 a day to feed people. I don't know if they were flying every day. Like that's what I don't know. But, but I mean, yeah. but I mean, there's but there's other kinds of expenses attached to that. Like there's like d- like disposal fees at airports and all kinds of yeah. like just just built-in fees. $200 a day is not an unreasonable amount to be feeding. It just isn't. 
when yeah. you're dealing with travel yeah, of that nature. No, I agree with you. Look, I mean, this like, has been a theme yes, you're right. of mine could, over my could, could, could they have like survived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Maybe. Is that reasonable for someone at that level traveling on the government dime? No, moving on. <laughs> Well, I just, it actually worked out. It probably actually works out to be something closer to a hundred dollars a day in food costs, because and then with the fees, with a hundred dollars a fee of of worth of sort of logistics fees built into that, that's that's a pretty um. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, that's that's my rant on that stuff. This is extremely Canadian, though. This is. This is I mean, so Canadian. I've written like six columns about this over the years. I space them out every couple of years, and. The pushback I get when I write these columns is ferocious. People I know. are so angry at me when I write the column that basically amounts to the fact that Canadians are cheap. Yes, essentially, we are exceptionally cheap. Um, All right, yeah, you, do, you do that yeah, one. You, that. you take the heat this time. I'll take the heat this time. Uh, the other one I want to write about is, of course, the uh, uh, Alberta UCP leadership race has kicked off. And the bar yeah. that I had set for that race, let me tell you, is not high. And it managed to disappoint right out of the gate. So we started off with an announcement from Danielle Smith, who comes out with a little video that says that her first role in office is going to be to introduce something called the Sovereignty Act which is going to uh, somehow make the province able to not follow regulations it doesn't want to somehow. And this might be the dumbest fucking thing I have ever heard in politics. And to me, it's really interesting because like, I understand the, the desire to appeal to like sort of a, a populist base, but to do that requires a very, very fine line. Like you need to be able to throw stuff to your crazy base while still sounding somewhat plausible. And this this to me was like, no, you just came out of the great gate as a cuckoo kachoo. Welcome, welcome to cuckoo kachoo land because that is like disqualifyingly idiotic. It's so stupid, I can't even begin. Let me give you like, one- I can't even. Okay, I defer to you on all matters, Alberta, but let me- Yes. Why can't Alberta do what Quebec does? Alberta could do what Quebec does, but Quebec didn't pass a sovereignty act that said that it's not, it's just not going yeah. to be, you know, like that's not what Quebec did. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just think there's been some interesting buzz this week in, in, diff, in different quarters about how uh, Quebec under uh, Premier Francois Legault is getting increasingly, we could politely say strident on some of his red meat uh, pro pro francophone issues and the, the constant political paralysis and cowardice among federal liberals and conservatives who will never say a word against this stuff is eroding the charter in ways that we may wake up one day and it just doesn't Quebec work ha, anymore. Yeah, effectively, Quebec has separated. Quebec is its own nation at this point. In almost all but name. If you were to go and tell the separatists of the 1980s that this is what the relationship between Quebec and the rest of Canada was going to look like by 2022, they would have been thrown. I, right. you know what, you're we're right, but I think if you we're, went we're, and told Jean Chrétien in 1995 that this is what it would look like in 2022, he'd probably also be thrilled. Maybe like, yeah. like, like maybe this is just the uneasy compromise, but yeah. essentially they've separated in all but name and they managed to keep the money in the transfers. Works for me. Does it? Doesn't, does it? I mean, I think that if you were to do a referendum for the rest of Canada at this point, I'm not sure we would, we would keep Quebec in. Like, I'd like know, to like see this, the question. Right. This is the yeah. question. So like, yeah, yeah. Alberta absolutely could move to a more sovereignty focused um, relationship within the federation and, and in fact under the UCP that's exactly what they were trying to do they were trying to talk about getting fair deals passed they were going to talk about 
um, uh, running our own pension plan and running our own police force and doing all these sorts of things, which would turn Alberta into essentially an oligarchy banana republic, but that's beside the point. Yes, it could be a more independent within the Confederation. But you don't just do that by passing a law saying, nah, 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 we're not going to be subject to federal regulations because that's not how any of this works. Well, I mean, I guess Smith has signaled what base of the electorate she views as her natural support base. So question, I don't follow the Alberta stuff. Um, Brian Jean is one of the other big candidates right now. What is his natural constituency among well, the uh, Alberta? And he's, and he, he's going, he's a, a, I, I do think that Smith's gone further to the crazy wing than Jean has, but essentially they're fighting for the same people. So, so who current, I mean, I know there's been some speculation about who might join, but of the currently declared, who's the normie? The normie would be Taves. So Taves would be like the, the or uh, and Sony is, Sony is probably the other one. So uh, there are some normies in the race. Taves is the one that kind of has the institutional backing of the Kenny people and to a lesser extent, some of the former Harper people that are that are, that are are playing in this game. Um, when they say Taves, I keep wanting to say Vic Taves. But it's not, like, it's the other. Yeah. No, it's the other Taves. Um, so anyway, so, but I mean, the problem that a lot of the normies have, and I, I mean, Gene and Smith also have is that like, none of these people aren't going to win against Notley. Notley is out fundraising the UCP by dramatic numbers and she's more likable. She has more name recognition and people are not happy with the UCP. So like. You think I, so? You think it's doomed? I don't think it's doomed. I think the UCP can pull it out. I just don't see like Danielle Smith versus Rachel Notley. Just do we really believe that that's going to go the UCP's way? Even Brian Jean. I mean, Brian Jean, I actually, is, I think, is one of those people who people don't give enough credit for. I think he's actually a much more evil organizer and politician than people realize. But like, Brian Jean versus Rachel Notley, really? Because we tried that in 2015. And... If I recall, yeah. Notley won that one. Yeah, Notley won that one. Yeah, yeah, dramatically. And then you've got like people like Taves and Sonny who frankly are have no name recognition despite being in kenny's cabinet like these are these they're they're, they're non-entities now that gives them an opportunity to define themselves but you know where, where have you been the last two years you know like i haven't seen hide nor hair of any of these people i wouldn't know them by face so uh, so anyway there has been some chatter that uh michelle rempel is considering jumping in the race i i think that would make it much more interesting I will note that she managed to dominate the national news cycle simply by making a non-announcement and in the process completely uh, uh, killing the thunder of both Gene and Smith, which is very funny to me. But mostly I would just like to uh, write a little dispatch pointing out that the Sovereignty Act is stupid. It's just yeah, really dumb. We can, we can do the deep dive in Alberta after the actual participants in the race yeah. have actually finalized. But yeah, yeah, for now, sure. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't cover this stuff well enough to, to, to know. I, I like to stay in touch with Alberta politics because your politics are interesting. You guys generate a lot of light for a province with half the GTA's population. Yeah, and this is actually something that Albertans themselves don't really understand. Part of the reason why we can't do just do what um, Quebec did is because we had a fraction of the population and no leverage. Like, I, like, I'm sorry if you don't understand this. You're a population of 4 million people. It's very small. <laughs> From where I sit right now, draw a circle with a radius of 100 kilometers in any direction around me. Okay, you get a whole bunch of Lake Ontario in that, but not including aquatic life. You've got double the people in all of Alberta. 
and we're half the Ontario population, right? Like it's, yeah, I've said this before. There's a very, I think I told you this before, Albertans sometimes. We forget. We yeah. think we're way more important than we actually are. And part of the fact that the reason why, why is because frankly, the national media pays way more attention to our, to our crazy politics than our population size would dictate. Also because we're just you're interesting. fun. You know, yep, we're fun. Interesting. We're interesting. But don't mistake that for actual power or leverage. It's not the same thing. We don't have a lot of it within Confederation and that's just what it is. Um, okay, well, we got a lot to talk about. So I will do uh, the, um, not writing the liberals off, but just kind of saying three years from now, end, yeah. maybe like if three yeah. years from now, if we're, if we're doing an autopsy on where it went wrong, this week would probably be a good place to start. So mm-hmm. we can do, we can do the line three years from now, a solid by getting a, a draft of that autopsy written now. <laughs> Uh, I've already done the airline one. We've got uh, a blurb coming in on uh, Jolie's terrible week. Uh, you are going to do Governor General travel. Stop being so cheap. Um, you are going to do the Alberta thing. Also on my list, the last item on the list, and this is something you were interested in. This touches on a little bit where I was talking about the the Liberals mandates. Uh, travel mandates mm. are changing in Canada. Do you want to say anything about that, or do we have enough? I feel like I feel like we've got so much. And if anything, I would just wrap that into the liberal liberal death spiral thing, just as a just as a line or two. Now the, that I'm thinking about it, what they're doing is what I, I described to you as a fighting withdrawal. They're mm-hmm. they've decided these are not politically sustainable positions, but for political reasons, they just can't say so. They can't do a best summer ever. They can't declare open for business. They've got to do. All right, we're going to let you not do this, but you really shouldn't do it. We don't want you to do the thing we're now going to let you to do. For political reasons, they can't just say the mandates have outlived their their purposes. Hmm. So, okay, yeah, I'll fold that into liberals um, and future. Okay, that's all I got. I So, you know, and I guess now all the listeners and viewers know too, I'm busy tonight. I don't think I'm going to be done this thing until tomorrow. Oh, okay, that's fine. Yep, that's all right. I was going to punch out mine this afternoon. I've got a PNP panel for, but um, other than that, I can just sort of pop it in the system and then we can send it out on Saturday. I'll put my airline blurb in the system now. I'll put the Jolie blurb in the system now and I will get to liberal death spiral probably. Honestly, it's my son's birthday party. It's not his oh, birthday, uh, but he's having his party birthday. this weekend. Okay. So um, I'm going to have cool. why 19 don't we... seven-year-olds at my house. I'm not going to do much writing. Oh, tonight. lucky, lucky you. Um, why don't we do that? Why don't we just uh, post the um, the podcast here early then? Yep. No, I, yeah, we'll, we'll, we can cool. get the video and the podcast up and we'll get the dispatch out tomorrow. Awesome. Okay. Thanks everybody. Bye.